Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco, and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states. Or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play store. Know where you stand with OnX. All right, everybody, this is the most special podcast episode we've ever had. That's because we're joined by John Ladd is your middle name, right? Correct. John Ladd Kaprowski? Kaprowski, you got it. Who has a genuine PhD in squirrels. More specifically, what would you say? I'm a wildlife conservation biologist, but I happen to work on squirrels. I appreciate the finer aspects of life. Yeah. The smaller, less obvious things. Um, I got to ask you this right off the bat, though. Before we get into Clay, is, uh, Clay Newcomb has a squirrel baculum, pecker bone, which we'll get into in a minute. But um, uh, why, like, did you know when you were, when you were a little boy and people said, like, when your friends were like, I'm going to be a fireman, you're like, I'm going to be a squirrel expert. Uh, first, it was center fielder for the Cleveland Indians. And <laughs> while that seems outlandish, the Indians were so bad when I was young. That you was had really to, a you're reasonable, like, why not me? There was a reasonable chance there. But soon after that, I knew I had to do something with wildlife. And I grew up on the west side of Cleveland. And you had pigeons, robins, you know, Norway rats, and squirrels. And so it, it was, was like a wildlife-deprived yeah. area. <laughs> yep. And it was my connection. And my father... I grew up fishing. My father loved to fish. I liked to fish. We'd go out at four in the morning. I'd fish till about two. Then dad would drop me off on the uh, drop me off on the shore. I'd walk it looking for for squirrels, for turtles, anything that I could. 
And uh, so that was my – it was my connection when I came home to be able to look out the window and see something. So I sat out in the garage live trapping squirrels from a young age. And then painting their sides or something? I, we got into so, that when we were little kids for a while. Yep. We tried oh, to do yeah. like our own mark and recap. Yep. Exactly. With a paint, <laughs> yeah. paint brush. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> really? Yeah, that's exactly what, what, what we did. Oh, yeah. If you, went, if you went to my mom's house right now and went into her garage and went where the have a heart traps are sitting on a shelf, you would see that they're slathered in red paint. From us trying to take a paintbrush and uh, do mark and recapture projects on chipmunks. Are squirrels easy to, tool, to fool with the trap? Oh, well, no, we would just do chipmunks. We had the chipmunk size have hearts. And hey, we didn't put too much effort into it. We thought it'd be cool if you could paint it and then see him running around the yep. yard and be like, oh, that's yeah. the one. You know? Well, I had that same childhood experience. We would catch them in have a hearts and then squirt whatever I could on them. And then the neighbors started complaining about the green squirrel, the red squirrel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so mom and dad weren't too thrilled about that part of it. But then I went to went to university, Ohio State University, uh-huh. and I was like, "Oh, I I can't wait to work on mountain lions or you know elk or something something when, cool and sexy." When, when I go forward, and I started my masters and got a call from a professor who said, "Hey, I've got this great squirrel project." I'm like, "Okay, but my next degree, I'm working on polar bears or lions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or something," and I worked on squirrels again, <laughs> University of Kansas. And then now I'm working on a bunch of those other things, but they're just such a good way for people to connect, you know, to conservation, to value, uh, you know, value the kinds of places we value. And they tell us a lot about the quality of a forest, you know, how severe a fire was, oh, is that right? all those things. Yep. They're yeah. just great indicators. I want to hit you up with some, uh, a couple of squirrel myth questions. Go for it. Well, no, not yet. Cause we want oh, to talk about oh, Clay's oh. little... Clay's baculum. Okay. Go ahead, Clay. Show show him your deal there. I'm going to narrate because folks not can't Clay's see. baculum. No, but, Clay's not okay. going to show you his baculum. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, I was actually unaware that uh, that squirrels had a a a, a baculum, a bone penis. Uh, the other day, I pulled this one out, and uh, and they do. And most <laughs> a whole lot of placental placental mammals have them. And it's, I just measured it, Steve. It's exactly a half inch. And this is a, just a standard gray squirrel. He appeared to me to be of average age and maturity. So he's got a, he's got a, he's a, that, that squirrel's what, a pound and a half, John? Two pounds? Gray squirrel? Yeah, at most. Yep. Okay. So he's got a half. So that's an inch per every four pounds, generously. Which, Hmm. goodness. Uh, but but describe to people what your um like the because you know people at home listen they driving to work right now can't tell what the hell you're holding. Uh, describe what you're holding, right? You know, if you saw this bone on the ground, let's say uh, you know you found a just a bone pile and it was a squirrel, it w- the bone would be totally indiscernible in any recognizable shape. It just it's kind of. Uh, it's about as small as a, a pencil lead and a number two pencil. The thickness of that, it's a half inch long. The the tip of the baculum flares out, which is pretty typical of all these baculi, of bears, of coons. It kind of flares out at the end. And towards the backside, it's kind of, it kind of is 
bulbous slightly, you know, kind of kind of wide and thick at the back, almost like a baseball bat. That's that would be a You're good speaking John's language now, man. The baseball bat. He used to play I'm for the it. Indians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Before he wanted to be a squirrel biologist. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, just a little indiscernible bone. Yeah. Uh, how John are you? Are you, how schooled are you on like physiology and whatnot? I'm happy to go there, and I really loved Clay's description there. I, I thought you were just going to stop at just this little bone, but all those those components that you talked about are 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 what make that that bone function. Another name for it is the os penis, the penis mm. bone, literally. Huh. Um, and so, Clay, could you take a look and? Does it look a little twisted? Usually, they're also a little kind of corkscrewy. If you if you look at, hmm. that reminds me of a limerick I used to know. <laughs> it's <laughs> this one, uh, just a bit, I think, for gray squirrels. This one still has a little bit of. This one's pretty fresh, okay. so it's not. I don't have it clean totally. It appears to have almost like a thread. Yep. Oh, like okay. towards the end. It looks like a it, yeah, kind of like a corkscrew. Yeah, I see one kind of rib. You got it. That uh, yeah. So these are used as part of the squirrel reproductive mating system. Uh, males form copulatory plugs. So when they copulate with a female, they their the semen hardens into a plug that tries to guarantee them their paternity. And oh, I don't understand that. So that when uh, once when you have a copulation with the female, yeah. within just a few seconds, the semen ha- actually hardens into a waxy plug in the reproductive tract and blocks other males from oh. uh, from breeding. Hmm. And so the corkscrew shape that that kind of bulbous head that you talked about that actually helps remove the copulatory plug of the previous male and so wow it's just kind of amazing detail in that if you pick one bone in a squirrel the baculum is probably the place to go clay uh, you just you just hmm. see that whole mating system laid out right there do is all that, rodents do that or is that exclusive to them all all rodents um, have some form of a baculum how no, but the, the but the plug part of oh, the plug, uh, it's not something that everyone's looked at in all rodents. But I think for all that where it's been studied, well, most um, where it's been studied, uh, they've been demonstrated. Like red squirrels, there's not really good evidence that the red squirrel you find around here. There's not really good evidence that they form a copulatory plug. But like the whole squirrel family, most of the rats and mice do it as well. I hate the fact that a squirrel has to be lumped in with uh, a rat and a mouse and be called a rodent. I always think about that with beavers, man. Like, it bums me out that beavers cool. are a rodent. Yeah. Too cool to be a rodent. Yeah. That's, yeah. But that's I'm, a scientific term. Rodent? Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole order. So it's everything with those kind of, you know, gnawing teeth for the most part. Rabbits are a whole different order, but somewhat closely related. And yeah, so rodents include beaver, muskrat, all the uh, voles and field mice, rats, all of those things. Capybaras. And then the really the capybara, capybara. Yep, world's biggest yep. rodent, right? Yep, you yep. got it. Chinchilla, chinchilla rodent. Chinchilla are yes, 
I was just going to say, going back to the, uh, the, the, the semen plug and then the corkscrew bacula, it's, it seems counterproductive because if the semen plug is designed to keep other males from, you know, actually breeding a female successfully, but then you've got an anatomical feature that defeats the semen plug, then it seems like you might as well, like from a adaptive standpoint of a squirrel, it doesn't do you any good to have a semen plug or a corkscrew. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, a ar- it's an arms race, man. And that's it. Yeah, survival of the fittest. Yeah, they've got this feature, but then they've got another feature that defeats the first feature. Yeah, but it, what it pushes toward is that you would develop a really like that your plug is the best plug on the in the in the field and your extractor is like a phenomenal extractor so you're like oh, i don't care if you he if he plugged it i'm gonna i got the best unplugger and then i'm gonna throw something in there that no one will unplug yeah yeah i once asked an ecologist like uh is there such thing as de-evolution like to go backwards and they're like well no because if it goes backwards, it's for a reason. It's just evolving more. Right. Despite it like losing some trait or something, that's still evolution. It's not de-evolution. By going backwards, it's still going forwards. Yeah, guy. Yeah. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, ask, ask John. And, 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 well, and, and so that's this is a, an incredible opportunity where you can just kind of see this battle, right? So you say, all right, we need more squirrels. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter who is the one that breeds, who's the most successful. But in this case, you just see that battle played out, right? You talked about plug characteristics, you know, how much sperm is in the, um, you know, is uh, is trans, uh, transferred during that copulation. And then this removal tool that helps you be successful. And the other thing is, it's not just the males where this is happening. There are multiple males that mate with a female. You've probably seen one of these squirrel mating bouts where mm-hmm. um, usually the female is only in heat for a short time on a single day, usually just like six or eight hours. So you'll oh, get- really? Like, yep. Mm. And you'll get eight or 10 uh, females. I've seen as many as, uh, or males chasing a female. I've seen as many as 45 gray, Eastern gray squirrels, like the species uh, that Clay was just talking about. 45 males chasing one in heat female. For six hours. Yep. And for the female, that's the one t- time she gets to mate. So typically it's to her advantage to mate with a number of males in rodents. And so after a copulation, the female actually will remove the copulatory plug if it isn't um, embedded far enough in a reproductive tract, and then she'll mate with the next male, um, you know, that's able to to gain access. How does she remove it? She just reaches down and with her teeth pulls wow. it out. So you know, rodents have those two uh, two big upper incisors, two big lower incisors. Like presumably, she can feel that it's seated properly, or like not where it needs to be. So every time she mates, she'll actually groom herself, and the male will groom himself as well. And then uh, there's there's a few minute period before she'll be receptive again. And during that time, males are all attacking each other, trying to gain access to the female. And then it, during that grooming, if it's if there's any plugs sticking out, she'll she'll pull it out and throw it to the ground. Sometimes even eat it. It's, there's a lot of it's a massive kind of waxy plug of protein. How do, how does a male win about? 
Like, does, does a female then select one or like what is what is the winning process like? So there's, it varies a little bit between different species, um, in, uh, but it's typically based on size and just the ability to continue to track the female. Uh, males can figure out that a female is going to be in heat about five days um, in advance. And so they start during the breeding season, males are just roaming around, figuring out kind of the timing of when some of their female neighbors are going to uh, are, are going to be receptive. And then before sunrise, they're out there waiting for the for the female outside uh, outside her nest. Was oh, that right, really? Yep. yep. And you'll get dozens sometimes, you know, lined up and they're fighting each other. Now and, where where were you though that you had forty five males? Like where were you that there's forty five gray squirrels in one like so, spot? Because Steve and I are going to go hunt there. So, I was going to say, <laughs> is, it like not, a, is it a I'm park? I'm not telling you. That's my secret spot. No, <laughs> but is it is it a, a park where there's yeah. just no pred, pred, predators around? Yeah. So this was in Lawrence, Kansas, where I was doing my PhD, and so kind of open parkland, pretty high density of animals, and it was uh, the the other part of this is during the breeding season when males start picking up that faint scent of a female that's coming close to, to being in heat, they really expand their range. And so for those five days, they're, fig- they're roaming farther than they ever move the rest of the year. Uh, the, rest, the rest of the year, they're in just a couple, couple acres of their home range. But during this time, they'll expand it five to 10 times. And so they're trying to find mates and, you know, be successful in the survival of the fittest battle that we were just talking about by just finding as many females that might be in in, in heat. So they come, we've had males move uh, three or four miles during, uh, to to find a receptive female. So they're, no they're coming in from everywhere. So you get 45 coming in from, you know, say a, a square mile or two. You've seen where one squirrel has moved... How many miles? Three to five miles from uh, his home? During a mating chase, I've seen a move about about three miles. I've actually, this is how, how lonely I am, guys. Um, during my PhD, I would go out in the morning and follow male squirrels and see how far they went. And Well, how do you know you weren't just spooking them along? So, well, <laughs> at, at a great distance. Oh, okay. And do I look scary? <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a good dude. You, uh, you're following him with uh, some sort of... Uh, Telemetry or now, this was the old fashioned way. It was in an open parkland, so I was just describe from open a distance. parkland a little bit. Better. Well, like big oak and hickory forest, but because it was in uh, in a small town, Lawrence, Kansas, you know, mowed grass, I you see. know, some some houses even in that kind of thing, and then the whole campus, which is so you just take a pair of binoculars and keep an yep. eye on them. Yep, stayed at a distance, followed them around, and and. Uh, Figured out how he much put, time he put spent. miles on during put the day. miles on yeah yeah it used to be in much better shape back then following yeah. squirrels three miles well, each way one of my questions was is there such a thing as a rut tree and I think you've pretty much answered it when we roll when we sometimes find like a tree where you like you shoot one and then lo and behold yep. ten squirrels start you know jumping Kevin Murphy in. talks about finding a rut tree yeah but yep. so it's one female and nine males and right. they're just all working that tree but it's just yep. that they happen to be in that tree. Like that yeah. tree could move, not the tree doesn't move. Oh, but, yeah, but I mean, you, you just happen to catch it where it's occurring where the, in that tree, but it's likely to drift to the yeah. next tree to the next tree. Yeah. So as part of that, uh, Spencer, you were asking about what makes them successful. The, the female doesn't 
she's moving around too. She's trying to feed that day. And, and, and so she's moving out there in the forest. And if the males get, they're all fighting and that level of aggression, they're really hyped up and they'll attack each other. Another male tries to mate with the female. The males will try to interrupt it. And so it's risky for her. And, you know, the male, that's the one, that's the one day they have to, you know, they have to be successful. The female has to raise that litter now for the next few months. And so she'll hole up in a cavity, you know, go in one of these, what we call leaf nests or drays, these kind of balls. Of what was the word you just used? Dray. Dray. Leaf nest. Le- Clay Newcomb, you ever heard that word? A dray? I've seen it in the literature. I would not have used that word, but I've seen it written. Dude, I'm going to start using that word big time, man. How's it spelled? Well, it depends if you're if you're British, you spell it D R E Y or D R A Y, and so yeah, you, if you, if you really want to speak the you know speak the Dre. language of squirrels, dude, I'm gonna do a Dre. PhD <laughs> in that stuff, and I'm gonna be Doctor Dre. <laughs> That's gonna be sweet, man. Do so, do red squirrels participate in gray squirrel bouts and vice versa? No, it's just a single species, uh, and. So there, but there is some confusion that can occur. And so I did, I've worked in areas where fox squirrels and gray squirrels both occurred. And you would, and that the case where there were 45 Eastern gray squirrels, there were a couple fox squirrels that were attracted by the noise, maybe like vaguely the scent, but they never really participated. You know, it's there, there's enough difference between the species that, it, it, you know, it doesn't seem to get there. And red squirrels are even more kind of taxonomically distant from fox squirrels and gray squirrels. So there, uh, I've never seen any overlap there. Do you, um, have you heard, I think we might've asked you about this. Have you heard... Are you familiar with the theory that, or the idea that people put out there that when males are competing, they'll actually try to harm the, the like bite the testicles of another male? Are you, are you like, are you familiar with this being yeah. an idea that I, people throw out there? I hear this all the time, and who from? And, uh, well, from you, yeah, from you, Steve. No. No. John, John is the person I interviewed for yeah. the article. He was one of my two. I don't, I don't, I don't trust things you. coming through so, you. Sure, so I don't I trust just, things I, coming through you. Before we go here, I want to know: Can you handle the truth? Steve, you know, this is I can't, a Jack just Nicholson moment. I, I, I can. That you'll, if you notice my line of questioning, <laughs> I haven't asked you, does it happen? I said, are you familiar? And, and, and I want to then get into how far back in time, like, have you heard this theory? And where do you feel that it, uh, where do you feel that it has come from? I almost fell for, your, fell for your skilled interview technique of sneaking into this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was very deliberate in my, in my, in my question asking. Well, and I'm also – I listened to the podcast um, just last night where where you were discussing this previously. And you two have a, a relationship that's kind of tenuous. I, and this seemed like something that could really separate you. So, Oh, there's a whole other really... thing that, that we're in a fight about that I don't even know about yet. It has to do with something he did to my friend Doug Dern. Uh-oh. Yeah, but <laughs> well, so I know people who've said their great grandfathers told them that, and I'm 59 years old, so we're talking like you know last century, you know people oh, yep. two centuries ago, late 1800s. I know folks who've heard that story, and uh, so it is something that's been passed along from you know from generation to generation, but just zero from, e- zero evidence, zero evidence. Yep, yeah. and and. 
I mentioned following males for three miles. You don't do that and see lots of things going on between, uh, you know, between uh, different squirrels and have never seen that. They You've do seen get, all the dirty so, tricks. Yeah. <laughs> so they get, they get in fights. They don't need to. They've got the, you know, the copulatory plug and the, uh, the baculum that, you know, that uh, helps them in that battle. But uh, what happens, what does happen, and so you've hit on something that's kind of unique about rodent biology. Uh, you can see why someone thinks that they have an animal that doesn't have any testicles because it's just a seasonal cycle in rodents. And squirrels, during the breeding season, the, the testes descend into the scrotum and, you know, enlarge, produce sperm, and they're ready to, ready to mate day after day for sometimes two or three months. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're really functional then. But then during the non-breeding season, they're, they move back into the abdomen up a canal and, and they're kind of held in the abdomen and they get really, really small. So you, it, you would have to, if you're just gutting the squirrel, you're not even going to notice. No you kidding. would have yeah, to yeah. really look and see it. So just this natural, natural pattern. That, and uh, the scrotum it's itself like, too sort of just shrivels up and just becomes belly skin again? Yep, or? it looks like belly skin. You'll see if, if you've got an older male, you'll see that there, it takes on a darker pigment and you'll kind of see where the scrotum was. And if you kind of spread the hairs a little bit, you'll notice that, all right, you know, that this is, you can tell it's an adult male because of that. Juvenile males will not have a pigmented uh, scrotum. And then uh, once they've gone through a breeding season or two, it gets dark and you could tell, hey, this guy's bred before. But it just, it will, you wouldn't notice that this was even a male if you were just watching them, you know, from a distance with binoculars or something like that. Do you, uh, do you believe in squirrel migrations? Is that true? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Historically massive squirrel migrations. And I think. Like, cons it, like, uh, like concerted no, movements no, where they're no, like, no. all the squirrels are moving in a direction. No. Okay. No. So, Yeah. Loosely using the word migration, there there are, have been historical reports, and even relatively recently, I was getting reports two or three years ago in the eastern U.S. of following mast failures. So mast yeah. are you know acorns primarily, hickories, some of those things. And when you get a failure, it's often a regional failure, and especially if you're looking at. Uh, you know, forests that aren't super diverse and they're just, you know, a long stand of a, just a couple of species. If it's a bad year, then we, there, there are reports of literally tens of thousands of animals swimming across the Ohio River to get into Kentucky, um, swimming across the Great Lakes, um, leaving some, uh, some of the more recent reports of these kind of large-scale movements are some, uh, uh, in Lake Michigan um, and I think Lake Superior coming off of islands where you've had a failure of mast and they're, oh, they're no swimming kidding. to the mainland. Yep. Yeah. Oh, you know, another thing I want to ask you about back to reproduction is what is the timing of the squirrel rut? Right now. Perfect time. These, uh, so right now they're, the squirrel rut's starting. Uh, it uh, begins sometimes even late December, kind of depends what uh, where you are in our, in, in a country, but like the, the heartland of the country going back to, uh, Michigan or, or Ohio where, where we're from, Steve, uh, 
things are starting right about now. You'll be seeing these mating chases that I was talking about. And for many th many species like uh, eastern gray squirrels and, the, uh, and fox squirrels, the two most common uh, species around the country, those will have a second reproductive season during the summer also. And uh, so there's kind of two peaks. And that's when during those times are when males have scrotal testes, that kind of real obvious case, um, you know, that, it, that it's the breeding season. So then do most females kick off two litters annually? They can. Females in good condition will pull off two, two litters. Uh, most often, the, the average female usually only pulls off one during those times. And if, if you have a late spring frost that knocks back, so they're breeding now in, in places with deciduous forest. The, the, uh, the food crop is still not really determined. And so you're just going to start getting leaves starting to pop out and that kind of thing. If you have a late spring frost and all that gets knocked back, uh, often females will absorb their litter and not produce that first breeding season. And then uh, they'll, they'll be in better shape and uh, reproduce during that second season. But some really, some older females and females in good condition, if you had a good, uh, you know, mass crop the previous year and they're, they've fattened up over winter, they are, you know, ready to go and uh, in, in, in really good uh, breeding condition, you'll get a couple of litters. They'll they'll be able to pull off during a mass failure. Nobody will reproduce sometimes, and you'll have no reproduction in a given year. And what's the average litter, and then a great litter size? So usually about three. So two and a half to three and a half is average for most most tree squirrels, and the records are kind of eight or nine, um, depending on which which sources you believe. But they're published records of seven, eight, nine. Uh, nine squirrels. Ground squirrels have a have larger litters typically, uh, but uh, most of the tree squirrels are kind of in that three animals, two and a half to three animals. That half animal is always difficult to yeah. difficult to count. Do, uh, what's been your relationship with um, squirrel hunters and squirrel hunting? Oh. Like, do you find that that's where most of your uh, of the sort of popular interest in your work comes from, or do you find it more, more from wildlife observers? That's the great thing about squirrels. I mean, it's kind of across the board. It's one of the things to me, you know, the, the reason I'm doing what I do in wildlife conservation is to bring people together to, to save these kinds of opportunities, you know, keep our wild and working lands, um, you know, for future generations. And Squirrels are one of those species that you can, you know, can bring everyone together. Sure, there's the occasional squirrel hater because their bird feeder is being attacked, mm -hmm. but uh, you know that's just the cost of having a bird feeder. Uh, it, I, I have a, a number of folks who are very interested because, just like I mentioned when when I grew up, it was the connection that someone has with the, you know, with the natural world, and then. You know, squirrel hunters also, it's a connection they have with the nat natural world. And then- So you don't have any so, animosity to squirrel hunters? Oh, no. I, I've hunted squirrels. I've I've eaten squirrels. Every time I go to my brother-in-law's house, he's got a, a different squirrel recipe for me to try. And you, um, you never feel so, bad about it? There's that the one moment, perhaps. But, uh, you know, but then if, if it's well-cooked, of course I don't feel bad about yeah. it. No. Um, can you explain, can you talk a little bit about how the- the color phases work 
with with the eastern gray squirrel. Okay. Yeah. I find there is like endless confusion about it's a black squirrel, it's yeah. a gray squirrel. There used to be a lot of black squirrels. Now it's all gray squirrels. Yep. Like, which is true. Yeah. Yep. It like shifts over time. Just watch my mom's yard. You'd be like, most of the gray squirrels are black. Then it's like a while later, it's like, most of the gray squirrels are gray. What's going on? So they're all gray squirrels. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to someone who's interested in kind of the taxonomy classification, they're all gray squirrels. They're that species. They can interbreed. The eastern but gray, though. Eastern gray. Because yep. the western gray, he doesn't have a black phase, right? There just been a couple of cases of okay. of. Uh, and, and in most species, you you have this rare these rare occurrences of melanic forms, the you know the black forms, and then also some albinistic or just uh, you know forms that are that or some of the pigments gone, so there'll be some kind of something in between or or mostly white but not completely. But yeah, it's just a you know just like hair color, eye color in humans, it's you know it's all due to genetics and. The, so I'm guessing your mom lives in in Michigan still. That's right. Yep. So once you start getting north far enough, the black forms become more common, and that actually has a physiological advantage. Does that uh, do like yep. with, with heat? Yep. It, that's exactly it. They, so, they absorb heat better. Yep. That's yeah. it. So the advantage is during winter. During the summer, people have done physiology on them. Doesn't make a difference. They, they you know, they. It, they're both color morphs have this, you know, kind of same metabolic cost, but during the winter, the ability to absorb and retain heat in that black color, you know, we've all watched. Yeah, the when black the sun's pavement. shining, yep. they come out and splay out on that's a tree exact, to suck yep. that sun up. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And that's usually in the winter. The first thing they do in the morning, they come out of the nest and just lay flat, warm up, and 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 then start their day. Well, the black forms have an energetic advantage, and when you're on that kind of razor's edge of, you know, do I have enough energy to survive, to produce offspring, you know, any little advantage, um, you know, is something that could be capitalized on. So Toronto's, you know, Southern Ontario, lots of black color morphs. But if you go down to Eastern gray squirrels, get all the way down to the Florida, South Florida and close to the Florida Keys, black forms are are hardly ever seen down there. Is that right? Now, can one litter have full on, like, Full on gray and full on black ones. Yep. That uh, we just talked about, we started off talking about the mating system, multiple fathers for a single litter. And so you've got that possibility. And then just the heritability, people are still working out how that black color morph, you know, how dominant it is and, and that kind of thing. But uh, typically, that melanic form, we do know that it is a dominant morph. So if it's, if uh, that gene is present, then you're going to get the production of lots of black pigment. Gotcha. It's going to be dark individuals. So you, you can have, you can have mixed litters of mixed coloration, usually that kind of grizzled gray color that you're familiar with. And then the, the black morph. Okay. Guys, I'll go. I'll go on for three hours, man. You got. You want to throw one in there? So I, I read from an aerospace engineer once that squirrels can survive a fall from any reasonable distance, like any any height of any building. What's like the furthest you've seen one fall and, and live? I've seen one fall seventy feet and hit the ground and just get up and start running. They're always a little dazed. They're always a little dazed when they hit the ground. Um, they so that's excusable, yeah, though, right? Yeah. Well, no kidding. And 
it, it, just like you, if you fell, you know, you usually see them kind of shake their head, blink their eyes a few times. 70 yeah, feet so, though. Yeah, 70 feet. And doesn't yep. shatter every yep. bone in his body. I guess well, they're not like, they got like enough air resistance or. Yeah. And, and that's it. It's kind of a surface area to volume, you know, that people have, people said no one has experimentally looked at this, but you know, that a mouse could fall off the Empire State Building and, and still, and survive that fall, uh, you know, where a squirrel with its size, when they've calculated it, they wouldn't be able to survive a fall that far. But during those mating chases, I mentioned all that aggression, males do not sit there passively when you've got, you know, 10, 15, 45 males, they'll knock each other out of the trees all the time. And, you know, it sets their competitor back a little bit, but I've, I've seen, I've seen them fall, you know, 70 feet and hit the ground. They, they shake around a little bit. You know, they're stunned for a few minutes and then they're, they're back at it during those baiting chases. So if, what, what was going on at the 70 foot fall? So they were at the top of a large tree. The male and female were copulating and another male came and knocked them both <laughs> out of the tree. The female was able to hold on to the tree. The male fell 70 feet and, you know, he went from... You know, thinking that he was going to be successful that day to fall <laughs> oh, in seventy man, feet yeah. and trying to work his way back, you know, waiting in through, line through the battle, to fight his way back. Right. On so, have you these. ever seen one die from a fall? Then, nope. But people have looked at uh, looked at skeletons in museums to look for breakage of long bones and that kind of thing. And not surprisingly, uh, somewhere from five to ten percent of the animals have broken long bones, so they may sustain some damage on those falls. Uh, you know, those broken long bones could have come from lots of things, but uh, you know, they there's some evidence that may maybe you know they they do you know take on some some real physical damage too. We've come across dead squirrels laying like inexplicably on the forest floor. It's exactly my question And right deduced now. with, for no reason whatsoever, that they must have fallen. Well, yeah, I mean, what, <laughs> it might be an impossible question to answer, but yeah, you're like, uh, we've, it's probably been the same squirrel a couple of times, but I know that just with my kids, been walking through the woods, squirrel hunting, and there is a perfectly fine looking squirrel. Like not eaten. Not eaten, yeah. no claw marks, no talon marks, uh, no 22 hole in it. Um, I mean, looks fresh as, as a daisy. Like you'd almost want to just put it in your game pouch and take it home, but you don't because you don't know what killed it. So a couple of things. Often uh, when you find those animals and you, and you actually, if you skinned them out and looked, you'd see that there was a talon that whacked them and the, and you know, the hawk or uh, the owl ended up you know, losing it. Sometimes they'll fight over each other. So we've had a number of times where, where I'll get an animal and I'll, I'll say, oh, there's absolutely, absolutely no reason for this animal dying. And when you skin it out, you just see those, you know, the, you can see where the talon marks were. So it's possible that it's that. I hate to go back to squirrel mating systems again, but I'm no, gonna, I'm gonna, we're going to go there. Uh, so where I have seen animals fall dead was that during the breeding season, those males are getting up early every morning, going out, trying to mate with females during the day, then trying to figure out when the next female is going to be in heat and, you know, plan their next day of, of activity. And when you do that for 40, 50, 60 days, males are often in horrific condition and they're fighting each other. So we've had, I've seen probably a dozen animals that have, they'll wake up in the morning and fall dead to the ground 
and you'll and you will just find them. They'll look like they're, they're just malnourished. So, yep, they're just malnourished. We skin them out and we do a necropsy on them, and you'll see often 15, 20 puncture marks from other males, the incisors oh. where they beat each other up, and then they've got no body fat on them. So you know they're they're giving it their all, you know, and and you know as far as survival of the fittest, if they made it with some females, you know that. They've done all they need to do for that year, uh, but so I have come across uh, male squirrels like that on the ground, and they have, and I've watched them fall out of fall out of a you know from a, a den first thing in the morning or early in the morning, just haven't been able to, had enough energy to to, mm -hmm. to continue to move. So, you know, uh, I was at Doug Duran's house. He's a buddy of ours in Wisconsin. Deer hunting one time, and I heard. Uh, Noise that like that most people wouldn't recognize, but it was a mink. They have a very high yeah, pitch, yep. like uh -huh. like this yep. high pitched yep. squeal when they're agitated. Uh -huh. There's a mink trying to gain entrance into a squirrel hole, and there is a squirrel fighting, yep, like the Dickens, to keep him out of that hole. And eventually, the mink gains entrance into that hole, and I never heard another peep, and never saw that mink come out. Well, it's got a lot of food for a while. He, just, he like went in there. I, I don't really know, but it was like he went in there, killed the thing, and then just settled in. Well, I'm I'm sure that's the case. They and it, there may have been more than one squirrel in there. Most squirrels, especially during the winter, you'll you'll get groups of, especially female squirrels. Eastern gray squirrels are actually really highly social. So there'll be several generations living together of females. During the day, they're out. You, you, you won't see them in groups. But at night, they all come back. And it's that same, instead of a predator trying to get in, it's another squirrel trying to get back into that nest. Uh, you know, they use each other's body heat. That gives them an advantage. And so you'll see multiple animals. I've seen nesting groups. I think I think the largest I've seen is 14 related females together in a nest and then males will get together and nest um, uh, and they're not based on relate relatedness so you'll sometimes find eight or ten males in the coldest nights nesting together and then first thing in the morning they take off yep. but that's a finding a quality nest that they can defend from inside is one of the biggest resources you know we always think of food and and that kind of thing but those quality dens that you get in big old trees are huge for these these groups of related animals. So when we think about managing forests, retaining some of those big old trees, you know, becomes really important to to quality forest management. Uh, I'll tell you something you ought to write a, a paper on. <laughs> Two years ago, I was hunting squirrels, and, and Brody Henderson was there. He can back me up on this. We were hunting squirrels, and we got a bad hit on a fox squirrel. He goes into a hole of a cottonwood tree. But then a fight ensues, yep. and another fox squirrel kicks him out of the hole. Yep. Fought him back out, and, and then we wound up getting him. Well, I'm glad I would they call that. Uh, I don't know what I call that paper. How, how would you name a paper like that? Uh, Steve is a poor shot, and <laughs> no. so, and elicits the assistance of uh, fellow no, squirrels. No, because we. Uh, <laughs> Heffelfinger, Heffelfinger, who you know, yes, recently sent us a paper where a guy got a publication off of the fact that uh, he got they got a publication off of 
that they had a trail cam set up and a jaguar came and drank from the hole. Leaves. An ocelot comes and drinks. The jaguar kills the ocelot. And this guy gets a scientific publication out of it. It's just like an observation. And then you're like, huh. So I do feel that you could publish this piece. Well, but with that attitude, <laughs> no, but you know, yeah, I'd be game as long as we can put the Steve is a poor shot. Um, yeah, like know, in the abstract there. or something. Yeah. It could be the first line of the <laughs> abstract. <laughs> but those kinds of rare observations are really critical. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I know some some scientists get a little snobby about oh sample size and things like that. And for some things, we obviously want to have enough sample size so we you know we can make rigorous management decisions and conserve species. But you know, for these really rare events, to me, it's really important to get that information out. And so I am all for those kinds of kinds of publications myself. I mean, you know, I, I sent that Jaguar cool. Ocelot thing to my brother, who's a ecologist. Oh. Um, he thought it was interesting, but he felt that in that article that talking about the that this was possibly something to do with climate change he felt that that was a little tenuous. going too far yeah <laughs> he yeah. thought that was a little so it's important to like document these things but yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, understanding the significance more challenging spring is a great time to do something with your family do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money. And provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of 
of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad-spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50, and it has airflow, so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. John, I've got a, I've got a question for you about something that I read, and it was a research project, and it was actually done in between 1939 and 1943. Huh. And this guy was studying squirrel populations in Illinois. The height of World War II. Yeah, in the height of American and squirrel hunting. And that's what he's thinking about. <laughs> yeah, the height of American squirrel hunting, too. Um, he said that uh, the earliest they saw a female squirrel come into estrus was December 11th, and the latest that they saw a female squirrel come in was January 27th, you know, for the winter rut. And he was real clear that there were two breeding cycles, especially with older females. And he get, he said that uh, that... From northern Illinois to southern Illinois, there was a 10 to 14 day delay. Like the southern Illinois squirrels came into breeding cycles earlier than northern Illinois. And I, I just saw that parallel, I guess, with a lot of mammals that are the breeding cycles of the north are going to be later so that the, the, the offspring survival is better because it happens later in the spring. But I was just going to say, like here in Arkansas, if you were to ask just the squirrel hunter down the road, when's the squirrel rut? They'd say early December. You know, that, that's kind of what they would say. Uh, but it, like I heard you talking about Michigan being, is it later, John, up there? Yeah, correct. It's a little bit later up there. And it actually varies between species a little bit. If you have both gray and fox squirrels, fox squirrels usually are a week to 10 days earlier. Not really sure why that is, but that's kind of a widespread pattern. And they'll start a little bit earlier in December. And you, you hit on it, Clay, that, that the farther you go north, they're usually a little bit delayed. And that all makes sense, right? Reproduction is all about producing young. Those young, you want them to emerge when all those buds are coming out on the spring, on the spring trees so that the female's going to be in, in good condition uh, while she's producing milk because the the most energetically costly event for a female mammal is lactation, not pregnancy. Uh, mm. Pregnancy is costly, but trying to nurse those young for, and produce all that protein and you know fat-rich uh, milk, that takes energy. And so the timing of these things are really critical. And so as you go a little further north, spring's coming a little bit later, and you're going to see that, that, that change in, in the timing. You're right on the money, Clay. I asked a veteran guy, veteran squirrel hunter here in Arkansas the other day, I said, what's the toughest time of year 
to squirrel hunt. And he said late January because the females are denning and not leaving their nest much. Much. Yep. Can you? Is there any research on the movement of males and females during that time of year? Because it is really tough right now. And it it uh, and he said it's because they're denning up. They're close to their nest. Their their den trees. Is that is that about right? Well, if we eliminate poor squirrel hunting from this, mm-hmm. then. Uh, it, 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 what you're exactly poor right. dogs, not great dogs. <laughs> yeah. So you're They're exactly Steve right, shooting. though. Yeah. <laughs> so the females have gone through and reproduced already. Now they're, you know, they're pregnant. And so they hole up. They don't, they're not using much energy. They'll usually go out for literally just an hour or two a day, feed, you know, eat whatever nuts they can, and then go back in. The males, though, it's, it's usually still the end of the breeding season, and they're still roaming around, and they start ranging even more widely, trying to find, you know, one of the last females that might still be available. So you're, yeah, you're, you're basically trying to hunt half the, you know, half the population now because mm. females are holed up. And unless you you know where a den is, you know, where the female might be coming out, um, you're, you're not even going to see them very much during during that time. So yeah, you nailed it. Okay. You know, that's an interesting thing you brought up about that lactation takes so much energy because in people that hunt, um, people that hunt a lot of wild pigs will say the best wild pig, the best condition is a pregnant sow. And I always thought that like that they'll be fatty. And I was like, how could that be? Because how is it not so taxing to produce it? And they're saying the worst pig is a nursing sow. Yep. Yeah. They just get like sucked dry. Well, that's that's exactly it. You know, you, milk is really expensive to produce. And so typically they're putting everything in to just produce in as quality and offspring as possible, giving them the best start in life. And so with, with female squirrels, they won't even the, – the second most energetically expensive part of their life is changing their pellage, you know, molting their fur and growing new fur. It's all protein, right? A, a bunch of it's protein. That's costly. They don't do that until after they've finished nursing their young. Mm-hmm. So you'll see these really raggedy looking uh, females late in the spring. I get calls where someone's like, oh, there's some kind of, you know, horrific disease going through. The squirrels, <laughs> you know, look all mangy and mangy is a – you know, can be a, a problem, but uh, it's just, they're just females who are giving everything they can to their offspring. And so they're producing, producing that milk. And if you look at fat stores of females at the end of nursing, there's no fat store, just, just like males are investing everything in those breeding seasons. And I mentioned some of them dying because they, you know, don't have any, they're just so malnourished. That's exactly what you can see with females at that kind of end of nursing. You're exactly yeah. right. I, I I got a double question for you. Rattle off like what normally kills squirrels, like from pred- from a predatory standpoint, and then what are some of the freakish things you've seen? So usually avian predators, hawks and owls are the number one uh, predator. Then you start getting into things like you know foxes and bobcats also take a, a, a large number of them. Catching them off the ground. Catching them off the yeah. ground, yeah. yeah. Much harder, obviously. You know, they squirrels can get into the trees pretty quickly, but raptors nail them. Raptors, in some of the studies we've done, raptors account for 80% of the mortality hmm. of red squirrels. And then you know, the 
remaining 20% of predation events are from foxes, bobcats, that kind of thing. But when they're in those, I, I mentioned the, the necessity of those quality den cavities and that being part of, you know, kind of good forest management. If you don't have a quality den cavity, lots of things can get in. Raccoons will, will come in and, you know, eat a whole litter and or a group of these nesting adults that are in there. You mentioned the mink, you know, being able to get in. Uh, we'll see crows. Crows will go into those nests. Crows, actually the leaf nest, the drays that we were talking about, those piles, kind of a basketball sized uh, ball of leaves up in the trees. Crows will fly from tree to tree, from, from tree to tree looking at those nests and trying to pull out squirrels from within. Ra some raptors will do that as well. Uh, but uh, gopher snakes, bull snakes mm -hmm. uh, will, uh, there, there's a really cool study that showed they actually uh, will climb trees that have those leaf nests in them more than they'll climb trees without them. No. Yeah. Yep. And they go in. How does he know? Just stuff. smells the activity at the base of the tree? It could be. Um, usually though, squirrels, they come in from, they don't come from the bottom up into their nest tree. They're usually coming in from the canopy. And that's something we should talk about is some of the kind of subtle scent communication that goes on uh, between squirrels. But the, so snakes are, are great nest predators as well, but there's some incredible records uh, documented a lot like the jaguar and ocelot that you were talking about. Um, they've been reported in the stomachs of bullfrogs. Uh, that's, a, hmm. you know, that's a big bullfrog and a small squirrel. But, yeah, uh, man. Uh, uh, and they've been, uh, largemouth bass have plucked them off of tree branches. Uh, so there are a couple of reports of, you know, seeing a bass come out with a, a squirrel, you know, eating really? some berries, you know, in this idyllic setting, you, know, you can imagine the, you know, the Bambi music in the background and then, you know, out, out leaps this, uh, this largemouth bass. So, you know, they're anything that, you know, they're a nice chunk of meat. So, so anything yeah. that can, anything that can get them is, is going to go for it. I had uh, read that squirrels, like all rodents, their teeth never stop growing, so they have to grind them down. And if they don't, they'll grow into their skull and kill them. Is that something you've ever, like, witnessed or seen? Yeah, so you're, so you're partially right. The cheek teeth don't, the molars don't grow. They're not everlasting. You actually can age squirrels by looking at their cheek teeth. So if you're out there hunting and, you know, you get, you get a young of the year, it'll look like a kid's molars, you know, a human child's molars where you can see every little nook and cranny, but they get worn down, you know, as they get, they get older. So really old animals, you'll see those teeth worn down to the gum line, you know, just like uh, Heffelfinger was in here, I'm sure probably talking about deer aging numerous times, but uh, you can do the same thing with squirrels. And, but the incisors are ever growing and, and that's really the, you know, the business end of the squirrel. If they can't gnaw into things, then, you know, they're not going to be able to survive. So those are ever growing. And, it, you know, if you take a look at them, they've got that kind of orange or yellow uh, part that you'll see looking head on at a squirrel. That is harder than the, the white portion that's behind, and that's so they sharpen to a wonderful point that, you know, then, and they're able to, you know, open a, a, a hickory or, or a walnut. And so occasionally those will get offline. They, they rub up against each other and they kind of, you know, just like you would sharpen your knife. That's essentially what's going on with each, uh, each bite that the squirrel's taking. 
But if they're injured, you know, in a fall, in a battle, whatever, you know, causes some injury and they get offline, that's where you see these things grow back. And they, you've got that kind of wonderful circular shape that helps with the self-sharpening. But if they're offline, that means it circles right back and usually hits the eye or something like that. So now they're not able to gnaw into things. You know, they're going to be weak in condition. And so you don't see it very often, uh, but uh, you, you do occasionally get an animal that survives long enough and still, you know, still able to get enough food to be able to, uh, to see that, you know, a death that's a result of that, that malocclusion. Do they use those teeth to like kill little animals since they're omnivores? That's right. Excellent point. They are they're they're omnivorous. They will eat lots of insects. They'll eat you know other. They'll eat small mammals, but they're also are cannibalistic at times. And they'll uh, we've there are a number of cases in some ground squirrels like prairie dogs. They're actually infanticidal. They'll they'll kill. Uh, other young, they'll go into the burrow of their sister and kill her young um, to give uh, the advantage to the, that individual's own young. In tree squirrels, uh, we've seen them uh, kill birds. Uh, they'll, they'll frequently kill birds. They're known. Red squirrels are kind of really nasty egg predators and nestling birds. Uh, most most ornithologists that there's a group that will will hate squirrels perhaps uh, because of the the uh, the nest predation that that they have, but uh, I've even seen cases where uh, where they won't they haven't killed the individual uh, uh, three or four times in my career I've seen a young animal who's just learning to kind of walk and hold onto a tree fall to its death. And so we talked about adult animals surviving falls, juveniles that don't have the muscles to, and probably the balance yet, they'll fall to their death. I've watched the mother go down, check the individual, bump it a few times, realize that it's dead, and then literally pick the animal up and they start eating the brain and then they, you know, move on to other tasty bits of their own offspring that, you know, they were just nursing up in the tree maybe that morning. And, uh, you know, now they're, they're, uh, they're going for, they've switched to carnivory. There. That's called being like a, a pragmatist, man. That's, yeah, you, <laughs> That's you, like really something. It's like, yeah, well, they invested a lot in that offspring. Life, too, right? life gives you lemons, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Hey, when I was in uh, middle school, I had a friend that was at like the city park and he saw a squirrel get hit on the road. And for whatever reason, he went out and picks up this squirrel. And the thing, you know, we're talking about squirrel teeth and how sharp they are. And the squirrel bites him right in the webbing between the thumb and his pointer finger, just nails him deep into the meat right there. And he, like, shakes the squirrel off his hand. And he it cut his tendons in his hand, and he had to have major reconstructive surgery in his hand. Wow. To, to get it all hooked bad. back up again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that when we hunt, picking one up that's half alive. I've had them bite through my thumbnail before, so yeah, they and, and cut mm. all the way to the bone instantly. Uh, that story that you just mentioned, Clay, I was my first time ever 
uh, in Arizona, was driving along and I wanted to see an Abert squirrel, a tassel-eared squirrel, if you guys have, have seen him. Oh, Pretty yeah, amazing. Man. Super yeah. interested in yep. those squirrels. And uh, we were driving along. I hadn't seen one yet, just north of Flagstaff. And I just turned to my wife and said, I can't believe, you know, squirrel biologist hasn't been able to see one of these. And I'm driving along and literally right, uh, one runs out from the Ponderosa Pine Forest and I hit it. And, I, um, and so I'm like, crap, you know, what, what do you do? You know, and one, I wanted to see it. And two, I'm like, well, you know, it's now donated its body to science. And I had a collecting permit so I could legally go back and pick it up. So I turn around, uh, pull over, and it's just kind of a narrow two-lane road with forest right there. So I had to pull over probably a couple hundred yards away. I'm walking, walking along, and I'm almost up on it. And this Winnebago drives over, and as it the suction as it goes over, you see the tail flip up. But I kind of thought the body also popped up a little bit, and uh, so I go running up, not wanting it to you know to be hit by a, another car, so I'd have a good carcass. And I go to grab it, and it jumps up, runs off the road. And does that, uh, just like the fallen squirrel that we talked about before, climbs up a tree, sits there, and just keeps trying to shake it off. And uh, so I got a really good look at the at the squirrel. But it turns out that that's, that's actually really common. What squirrels do when they're, when they're going to be uh, attacked, right? If you're getting attacked by a hawk, you jump first, and then, then you hit the ground and start running. And that works really well if there's a hawk coming in or a fox, but it doesn't work well if there's a, you know, Chevy minivan, you know, that's, mm. that's driving over. You jump right up. And so uh, they often just knock themselves out cock, on the yeah. undercarriage and then, uh. and then get hit, you know, by the next car that comes by. Uh, but yeah, I've, uh, so I almost had that same experience myself. Okay. Yanni's got a zap you with some questions now. He's got some doozies. Uh, well, real quick before we get off, what kills them? What's just a, a average lifespan? Average lifespan, uh, if they, if you start from when they're born, you're just talking a little over a year. Uh, very few animals make it to adulthood. Once they reach that first year, which is when they they can start reproducing, typically sometimes a little bit earlier. You're you're looking at two and a half to three years is kind of a good lifetime. If you're looking at pet animals, uh, they've uh, red squirrels, fox squirrels, gray squirrels have all been people have had them for about twenty years, uh, so they can even live that long. And in some of our studies where we've monitored, you know, animals of known age for a decade uh, or more, we've had animals get to about ten years in the wild. Um, and maybe a little bit more, uh, some species a little bit less, but for a small, small mammal that you think, you know, isn't going to la- isn't going to live very long. They actually, once they figure it out, once they have that den, once they, you know, ha- know where their food is, they actually, and they're wary enough of predators, they, they actually can survive pretty long. Hmm. Did you like the ones I had highlighted or the ones that I had under my name there? Under your name. And I added a couple doozies in there, but. I, see I just that. stumbled across it's those. A, I just stumbled a, a across round. that section under Yanni's. I stumbled across that section under Yanni's name in my document. Um, let's let's talk about how they stash stuff yep. and like that whole process. And Spencer's got a follow up there too about uh, about stashes. But yeah, with, even, within this, know. were you were you involved in that study? Everybody got all excited about about whether they could remember where they put their nuts or not. Well, I've been part of a couple of those studies. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll step I, there, away. There now. Been, well, so 
couple of different strategies that, that you're looking at if you're talking about red squirrels uh, or Douglas squirrels out here in the in the West mostly. They're what we call larder hoarders. So you've come across, I'm sure around here, uh, around Bozeman, you've come across their what we call middens, these big piles of cone scales that they actually bury more cones in. Those are those middens, those cone scale piles are effectively a refrigerator for the squirrel. They keep their, they bury cones from subsequent years in there. And we've actually studied, we put little temperature transmitters in and studied that, that they function just like a refrigerator does. The cones don't open. If the cone scales open, seeds fall out, anything can eat them. If they stay closed, mostly just squirrels can, can eat them. So by keeping them in the refrigerator, you know, you don't, the food doesn't spoil. So that strategy works really well with pine cones and, and um, in places where there are lots of coniferous trees. But, but it's, those mins are also just a result of them just sitting in the same tree on the same branch and just chewing on pine cones, yep. right? And so that's often how these things start. You'll, you'll have, you know, you'll have a tree that's got lots of, uh, lots of uh, cones that in, in a good year, the animals just start feeding there and you get a little bit of a pile and then a juvenile squirrel that's trying to find a place to live often starts with that place, start, buries a few cones there, tucks a few in a log and then keeps eating and building these piles. Sometimes they get three or four feet high, kind of the size of a baseball pitcher's mound. Uh, and they're, they're typically a huge resource. You can imagine, you know, a refrigerator that's, you know, already proven itself in previous years, that becomes a, a, a huge resource. And so they're passed on from generation to generation. We've followed middens that have been occupied by squirrels continuously for 30 years, 40 years. Not the same squirrel, you know, mm -hmm. just as soon as one one dies, another one moves in. As soon as sometimes when we're doing some of our live capture studies and marking them, even when the animal gets in the trap, the neighbor realizes, hey, I can go steal a few cones. So we have to check these live traps and let animals go quickly because the neighbor comes over and starts stealing cones right away. Uh, so that that's a strategy that works really well with, with pine cones out here. And, you know, it's it, – and the – the uh, red squirrels that we have around here in Bozeman are territorial. So that's – their whole life is – you know, packed into one of these middens. Everything that's going to enable them to survive this winter is found there because these guys don't hibernate, and uh, you know they're they're relying on stored fat and then whatever pine cones that they've that they've saved. So being territorial and piling them in one place works here. The other other strategy that you see in uh, more dis in deciduous forests typically with fox squirrels and eastern gray squirrels predominantly here in the U.S. They, they, they're scatter hoarders. So rather than pile them all in one place where they can defend them and it's just theirs uh, you, uh, and they last for a long time because your refrigerator's working, uh, with things like acorns, they spoil relatively quickly and tons of things can eat acorns, right? You know, those deciduous forests and those good years, you got turkey, deer, every small mammal, some other uh, crows and some other kind of, you know, good-sized birds uh, will, will eat them besides squirrels. So they take a different strategy and they scatter them out. So they actually go under a tree that has a concentration of them and they spread them out um, and uh, so that reduces the the risk of other things eating them. But the problem is 
know, how do you find them again? And so it turns out that part of its memory, part of it is a strategy that they, uh, you know, this is their general area. Um, so there's, it's not, it's not territorial where it's just exclusive use. They will, uh, but they tend to bury them in the same general area. Uh, so a, uh, a squirrel goes back to that area, uses its memory to say, hey, over here, you know, I, I, I know I buried buried some nuts, um, you know, if you're thinking a, a, like this from a, from a person. But they actually find them typically not solely by memory. It's the smell. They've got an incredible sense of smell. Uh, their eyesight's just okay, but their sense of smell, they've, they've been shown to be able to find a nut uh, three or four feet under the snow, uh, by smell. Smells it yeah, coming up yeah. out of there. So it gets huh. there, you know, it says, okay, this general spot, I know I buried them. And that makes sense if you, you know, it looks a lot different with three feet of snow. We've all, you know, been hiking in, in a forest and said, you know, and no, notice how different it looks in the winter. So memory alone, you know, that log now is covered up and, you know, the, uh, the even parts of that tree are covered up. So they go in and they, they smell through three or four feet of snow. They'll, they'll pick up that scent. I got two related questions here. One is, do they ever stash meat? And then the other one is, can you explain deceptive caching and have you ever witnessed it? I'll take the first one. Yes. You are correct, Steve. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know the problem you, that, that your, I think your field has created? Don't say red squirrel. I, I'm all about solutions, okay. so I'd <laughs> like to know what problem. Get expunge red squirrel. From your vocabulary. Okay. Pine squirrel. Pine squirrel. Unless there's a problem there. Because I find, like, I got a buddy from Missouri who now lives in Michigan, and he calls fox squirrels red squirrels. I'm like, it's not a red squirrel. Well, you, you need damn to sure it is red. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I said, uh, just to clean it up, I said, listen, with him. I'm like, pine squirrels, which he's not accustomed to because he didn't grow up with them. I'm like, you got pine squirrels. Once you live in a place with pine squirrels, don't say red squirrels because everybody gets mixed up. I feel that like nationally, like Biden's signing all these executive orders. I think he should, should add that one. in <laughs> and clean that up. And in, in terms of Spencer's question, uh, I read a paper one time where they were doing a study, a mortality study in Alberta on leverets. So baby snowshoe hares. And they would find the bulk of the dead ones in pine squirrel middens. And I'll add quickly that uh, I have seen where grizzly bears dig up and raid middens. Yep. Right. I'm back out now. Okay, so first I'm <laughs> going to go with your pine squirrel suggestion. While I am incredibly appreciative of, of your suggestion there and, and will take it into consideration. Uh -huh. Everybody loves uh -huh. clarity. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so red squirrels... And I said red squirrels. Yeah. Um, in the eastern U.S., you find them in deciduous forests. So there aren't even pines around. And you can find red squirrels. Still a pine so. squirrel. Well, <laughs> it's, emperor it's still a red squirrel. Emperor penguin's not an emperor. It's still, it's still, it's still a red squirrel, too. Uh, so uh, I, I know, having grown up in the Midwest, lots of people call fox squirrels red squirrels. Yeah, you know the so, red ones. So, yeah. Like, and they're orange, right? Yeah, yeah I they're more of orange squirrels. Squirrel. I, so let's go with orange squirrels. We'll we'll talk to to Joe Biden and see if he goes. For, I, I, I if go he can more, get in there on yeah, the executive. Go, more, yeah, go more orange orange squirrel. Orange squirrels. <laughs> uh, 
so those the middens that you talked about uh, and that we've kind of discussed as a refrigerator, they're a refrigerator for more than just uh, just cones. They'll uh, squirrels will put mushrooms in there, and they will store meat. So we found chipmunks and uh, leverets, and, and uh, we found them buried in, cached within the. The, those cone scale piles. It's kind of risky though, because lots of things eat meat. So what more frequently what they do is they they hang them up in the trees. They hang mushrooms up in the trees, but they hang I've, small I've bunnies. Seen that, man. Up I in didn't the know trees. what that was though. It, it's it like Blair Witch so, stuff, man. <laughs> well, yeah, like muskrats or sorry, mushrooms in trees. Yep. Yep. Like someone put it there. No and, kidding. Yep. So huh. they're they're putting them up there, and they they actually manage them. So you guys have seen red squirrels. Uh, you know they just they're constantly running back and forth, protecting this pile in uh, the the midden, and they're they're also is you know anal about managing their uh, their uh, mushrooms. They will just pick them up and move them around the sun, you know, the sunny side of the tree, they'll put them there to dry out a little bit huh. and they'll move them back. But they do the same thing with little rabbits as well. So we've, we've seen them a few times kill, uh, kill rabbits. But, uh, the first time that we came across this probably 20 years ago, when I first moved to Arizona, I'm looking up and I think that there's a squirrel in this tree above me. Cause there's a big dark, blob, you know, kind of backlit and, and it's kind of blowing in the wind a little bit. So I thought it was its tail and, you know, it was a, it was a small rabbit that had been hung up there probably to, to dry, you know, you got to make good jerky if you're going to use no this kidding, all, man. All, yeah. all winter long. That's great. So, yep. Amazing. The, the next question was about deceptive caching. Can you explain it and have you witnessed it? Yep. So this goes at that. You're scatter hoarding your nu- these nuts around, right? You're trying to spread out a resource that's concentrated under one tree, and you want to end up with as much of that as possible. So there have been a few cases that I've seen, and it's been reported a little bit in the literature that squirrels will, you know, do the head fake and uh, you know go in and and fake caching things. I've seen them pick up like a rock. Put it, dig a little hole, drop it in, move a move a leaf over it, and then you know go back and you know grab an acorn and bury it somewhere else. And so there there is this thought that, and it makes sense that this is such a competitive. You know, if you don't get enough energy, you're going to die over winter. So every little advantage you know can can play out. So we've seen that, and we think that's due to. Different squirrels, you know, trying to uh, trying to be deceptive, but uh, because squirrels can smell so well, you know, that probably isn't a great technique solely to to reduce predation, uh, seed com- competition from other uh, seed predators. But for birds that typically birds can't smell, you know, there are a few that do use smell, but most birds can't. Uh, so they by Going in and faking, here's where I'm burying this, where I'm caching this this seed. A, a bird is not going; they're they're going by those visual cues. And hey, he's you know that squirrel's burying nuts over here. I'm going to go check it out and bounce around till I can find one. And uh, 
so we think that it actually may be more advantageous for that kind of competition than within your own species where, you know, you can, you can pick up the smell of a nut much more easily. I watched one. I don't know if it was doing a deceptive cache or if he just wasn't happy with his first spot, but I was, I was quite surprised to find I was on a, maybe a hundred foot sort of knoll knob in a Oak forest in Wisconsin, but a solid hundred yards from the nearest stalk of corn. Now I'm standing there just observing and up, up onto this knoll pops a squirrel with a, at least a half a corn cob in its <laughs> mouth, runs along some logs, goes to a spot, sets it down, digs what I thought was a pretty, like put some effort into making a hole. I mean, he's talking about a half a corn cob and then just leaves, picks up his corn cob and, you know, goes 10 feet farther and then stashes it in there. But, uh, Two things. Well, the biggest thing that struck me is that how far he had gone yeah. to go get get that. And I'm guessing the caloric value of what he was stashing was worth that trouble yep. Yep. And, and putting him away. But my, uh, that what you said earlier brought up a question. You keep talking about like near the same tree. Like how big is that stash zone for a squirrel? So it can be the, the size of the home range, the area that they're roaming really varies on the kind of the quality of the forest. So if you're in a really poor forest, you've got to range more widely. And so the zone that they're burying them, you know, varies uh, by those kinds of conditions. But typically you're looking at the home range of most squirrels is kind of a football field or two. We're talking just a, a couple of acres. And you are, although males during the breeding season roam, you know, 15, 20 times, sometimes more than that. And, and they, but within that, they typically will, they'll, they'll bury, if you're talking out in an oak forest, they'll bury them in kind of concentrated areas, but they also, you know, it's, it's energetically costly if you're, you know, going to, going to grab an acorn, you know, if you have to run a mile to bury it, you're not going to, you know, that, that makes no energetic sense. So they typically don't go very far, but they're spreading them out sometimes hundreds of yards away from the tree. And that's actually kind of the thought to be, that's to the advantage of the tree. You know, the, the acorn falls straight down. Now it's, you know, its parent tree is the competitor for sunlight and water, but giving this nice tasty tidbit that a squirrel's going to take out and bury, you know, is the, really the advantage the tree's looking for. Out of, out of the deal. So we have seen them. They're, they, they're known when you get a walnut tree that's uh, in fruit, you can actually smell it if you're, if you're out there. The squirrels are known to come from a couple of miles away to get a walnut tree that's a black walnut tree back east that's in, you know, in fruit and just- You think they're smelling it? Yep, they smell yeah. it. Yep. It definitely, just like they find females from, from far away. Huh. That scent is really the way that squirrels communicate. I know we've all heard the saying probably, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. Sure, yeah. They, they don't use their eyes to find squirrels. Really, it, technically, it should be even an anosmic squirrel finds a, <laughs> finds a nut sometime because, you know, you, you know they, they use smell to find these things. They use smell to find females. They use smell to find food. They also use smell to communicate. And, Clay, I'm really – I'd be really curious if you've seen this. Uh, they they use scent marking sites, fox squirrels and gray squirrels in particular. If you look at the underside of a branch or the base of a big cottonwood tree, you'll see areas that look like something's, 
you know, and uh, you know, maybe a maybe a buck has come by and and scraped along there. Uh, but if you look at it closely, you'll see squirrel incisor marks. These are are scent marks that all the males roam by and and mark there. Sometimes they'll is urinate, that right? Yep. Sometimes they'll urinate on it, but they have glands in their cheeks and they just they'll wipe them. Uh, like they got it. a little scrape out in the woods. Yep. A little buck yep. scrape. Yep. Base huh. of big trees. I've never never seen that. Never. Never seen it. Never, never heard that. Look at some hickories and mm. look at some oaks, and especially on the underside of the lowest big branches, or if the tree's got a little bit of a tilt on it, the where it's less exposed to, uh, you know, to weather, uh, where that scent probably stays. You'll see these things. They're sometimes they'll get as big as maybe two feet by like a foot and a half or what? something. Really? Yeah. 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 You'll see them. They're, they're all over. I'm coming. I came here from Laramie, where we've got fox squirrels. They're all over the the trees there. So, like, would that be a good so, strategy to sit that little scrape? <laughs> so, if you sit there, that, that, and I was going to say, if you sit there long enough, you'll you'll see animals come through, especially as you're approaching the breeding season. So, in the spring, it, it is a good place to go to to see squirrels and likely to hunt squirrels and it's it's male biased so you know you're you're not you're not hunting getting the big bucks females. yeah you're getting the yeah you're getting the big 1.2 pounders yeah huh what what mm. are some other things like that that hunters are probably ignoring or don't know about like if if they're in the woods and they're trying to find a good place to hunt besides the obvious like actual squirrels what are some indicators that this is going to be a good place well, if you put your deer stand up, you can almost be sure that squirrels are <laughs> yeah, come squirrels by. are so drawn one, to deer stands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's one of the best places. But uh, so a, a couple of things: those in the mornings, the animals come out, and almost the first thing they do, if you're talking fall, winter, and spring, is they'll bask in the sun, and that's when you get a group of squirrels. So you'll have you know six, eight, ten. 12 squirrels all nesting together. And so finding those big old trees that have some cavities in, they're not, they don't like the incredibly decomposed one wind and we're going to fall over kind of, kind of tree. But if you're, if you're in a place where you've got some pretty good older, large, older trees, they may not even produce, they may be so old, they're over mature, aren't producing any tree seeds, but they've got some good cavities. That's the place to go. You've you've all seen those den cavities probably, mm -hmm. and you can tell where a squirrel's been gnawing it, and the tree keep kind of keeps regrowing, so it's kind of a nice smooth edge. That's you know that's a a, a good indicator, and uh, to to assess whether the the animals might be there. I like to go out the night before because that's when animals are going back to the nest. And so if you follow animals back, that's when you get six or eight animals coming together right at, you know, right before, uh, before sunset. So picking up an animal in the woods and following it back, you can usually figure out what tree or a couple of trees they're going back to. And, and that's, a, that's a really good indicator. Uh, uh, and then just the noise of them and, most hunters will, you know, use that noise or the falling of, you know, cone scales. If you're looking yeah, at yeah, red yeah. squirrels, you're looking at pieces of, of nuts that are falling. Uh, that's always a great indicator. But these scent marks are something like Clay, Clay said. I know Clay loves, loves squirrel hunting, and most people haven't seen that. But if you go out and look, 
I guarantee that you'll that you'll find a bunch of those. Red squirrels don't do that as far as we can tell, uh, but all squirrels have these scent glands in their cheeks. And when they're going back to the nest, they wipe those, they'll stop every few feet on a branch and wipe their head back and forth, called a face wipe. And they're depositing scent that probably says there's an animal here, this nest is going to be occupied. And you know, if you're a friend, come join me, share your body heat for the, you know, for the night or, uh, you know, be prepared to like that mink who won the battle, be prepared, uh, you know, be prepared out, to, you know. Do, yeah, to duke it out there. I once did that by accident, follow, I was not just like following it to see where the den tree was. I was chasing this group of squirrels and they got to the den tree ahead of me. I thought, well, by golly, I'm hunting tomorrow morning. I know where I'll be sitting in the dark and waiting for them. Now, I had a very successful first 10 minutes of the morning. Uh, am I doing anything, uh, like, am I hurting the squirrel population by, by doing that? Should I have felt bad about, like, just, like, you know, getting close to three-quarters of my limit in the first 10 minutes of the morning out of that one tree? So spread, spreading your your hunting effort out would be a, a good strategy. Uh, those groups though, uh, especially if you're not taking all the animals in the group, they're, they're either groups of related females and that, that group of females, although they're not territorial is, you know, that's kind of their space. So if you're not taking all the animals, you know, you'd, there, there are some that are still going to be there or it's a group of males and the males are typically, if you're not a male youngster who's with your mom and your grandmother and your, you know, uh, uh, you know, maybe a, a great grandmother kind of in, in that spot, then uh, you're, you disperse from where you're born and you're in a group with males. And, you know, as we know, the really important demographic class is going to be the, those females. So, you know, just being a little bit attentive and spreading it around, you know, they have good litter sizes. They typically rebound from hunting pressure that's not, you know, constant and immense without any problem at all. So, uh, you know, I, th I think you don't have to feel so guilty. I can see it in your eyes, but I think you're okay. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. 
I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Rain or shine every day is a great day for fishing, right? And you probably got rain gear, but you shouldn't overlook sunny day gear. Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite Hoodie has you covered on the sunniest day. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on and having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to, especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection? We're talking UPF 50 and it has airflow. So you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head on over to Columbia.com slash PFG and shop all of their performance fishing gear. With all the raptors and everything killing them and all the other That's stuff that kills time. them, is it, have you ever seen where... Um, where squirrel hunters have had like a, a a a localized impact on population that was of note. So there's no, I've never seen it, and because of the difficulty in finding them, I mean, you know, we just heard from Yanni that he can only find them ten minutes out of a day. So we've got that kind of ineptitude. You know, they're they're, they're always going to you know going to be squirrels around. Uh, they tend to have good litter sizes. They tend to be able to have two litters a year if the resources are high. So when density start to get low, you see, and you have a good cone crop or, or good mass crop, you have the ability to respond pretty quickly. There was a study uh, back east in Virginia where they uh, they tried to have an impact. They hunted them exceedingly high, and it's something like, geez, I should have, I, I want to say 70% mortality, so, something like that, where they really were hunting an area very heavily. Then in that case, they, they showed some impacts of, of hunting. Uh, well, but, there, yeah, but, but what happens is you have more individuals producing two litters a year to and, you know kind of compensate for that because now they're they're getting more food they're in better shape you know don't have they're not being chased around by other squirrels as much and they they can squirrels tree squirrels can reproduce at about six months of age so if you're in a, a time when you have a really 
good mast year, young of the year will reproduce really early. So you're born in February, March, and you can reproduce in that. There are cases where they've reproduced even in that second breeding season. So they're born in one breeding season and able to uh, to reproduce just a few months later. Wow. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're geared to be able to take advantage of these boom and bust mass crops. So a good year, you know, of mass, you're going to get lots of young. They're going to reproduce quickly and capitalize on them. Squirrel hunting is really so inefficient. Yeah. I mean, you realize that when you do a lot of squirrel hunting, <laughs> how you may hunt this big block of timber and you realize how many times your dog's tree and you don't kill that squirrel or how many squirrels you see that you don't kill. And so, I mean, you, you have to, you would have to hunt very, very hard to be able to knock them down. And there's, they're, they're, uh, they seem to be a species, like you said, that just bounces back so quickly. And the other way I, I think about it as a hunter and I'm trying to calm Giannis's nerves here and bring him back a little more center here. Uh, I'm joking, Giannis. Um, is that that you know if you had a hundred acre track of land to squirrel hunt and you just pounded it and maybe you killed seventy percent of the squirrels in there which you probably couldn't the there would be a vacuum around that place I mean like there you know I've squirrels would just fill that in because think of all the land you're not hunting around that like so if you could like grid off and just hunt equally like some huge portion of land like maybe you could knock them down does that sound about right john yeah exactly the you know prime sites are always somewhat limited out there and you've got when you're having a litter size of two and a half you know three and a half young maybe a couple of times a year animals we talked about how long they can live you know there's not this massive turnover of adults and so when when an animal dies another animal's moving in really quickly yeah. you always have individuals that are are looking for quality spots with red squirrels that are territorial even more so as i mentioned you know we, we put it we catch an animal in a live trap and you know just for 30 minutes and the neighbor knows that this spot is available and you know, we'll, we'll be over there in a minute. So, yeah, you're exactly right, Clay. I didn't want Giannis to be too soft-hearted when he comes to Arkansas here later this winter. <laughs> right. You take what you can get when you're squirrel hunting, buddy. <laughs> oh, listen, I, I've, I've put a lot of time and effort into hunting squirrels, and I've only had one episode like that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've yet to not pull, a, pull the trigger on a, on a squirrel opportunity. All right, vocalizations. Let's do it like just the because I'm guessing fox and grays are pretty similar, yep. right? So yep. let's do them because that's what most hunters concentrate on. Right. I know I think that like red pine squirrels have interesting vocalizations. I've heard a lot of them, and I think that they can sort of be valuable to know maybe to like an elk hunter because yep. you hear them yep. in the woods and exactly. somehow it might be associated with you. So let's let's break it up, but let's let's kind of maybe go through all the ones that you know of what they mean, and then maybe how we can use them to our advantage. So it's, there are a series of chucks, you know, kind of that cluck, 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 mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that kind of like, noise. Very good. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. That, yeah very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, they, that, uh, and basically it's, it starts there and they become more, 
prolonged, closer together, louder with a level of threat or, yeah. you know, the more. Yep. Yep. That's not it. No, I can't do it. it. You know, it's like that. It's like a, exactly. It's like it becomes a hum almost. Right. So, and and that's it. You take these kind of, you know, separate notes that are just cluck, 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 and then you push them, push them together and it becomes a bit of a hum. And then if they're really upset, then you get the whine at the end. So, and that is, and that's even worse than yours. Yeah, that was bad, but I know know exactly what you're talking about. But but that's like a super agitated, pissed off. Exactly. And he's telling his buddies there's trouble brewing. Uh, We think that it's more, they're telling the predator that- I know you're there and I'm really pissed off. Okay. You know? And and okay. so they'll usually stand their ground. Things like some Yeah, the... I was gonna I was gonna interrupt and, and say that usually when I hear that, I feel like I got a good chance of killing that yep. squirrel because yep. I feel like he's sitting there and like, I don't care that you're walking towards me. Yep, exactly. So they're going to sit there and they're just letting you know that they know. And, you know, that typically works if you're, you know, if you're a squirrel against other squirrels, probably most predators who aren't going to waste their time and effort. You know, if you're a, if you're a bobcat or a, you know, a gray fox and I've seen gray foxes climb trees going after squirrels, uh, you know, you're not going to spend all that effort if you've got something already knows you're there. Like you're, you're you're busted and there's nothing you're going to do about it now. Okay. Okay. So it's just the fact that I'm a aware of you that's going to make him not go not because he's like oh there's a mad squirrel i'm not gonna mess with that angry squirrel and so a lot of ground squirrels that live in groups there is advantage to calling and letting you know letting all your neighbors sometimes our related animals know uh and so you'll hear those alarm calls you you've been walking in a you know a meadow and heard a bunch of yellow-bellied marmots you know start sending off their alarm calls that's those are often related individuals they're alerting other members of their own species in that group know that there's a predator there but it also lets the predator know that you've been recognized. And initially, we used to think that was altruistic, you know, that you'd have you'd have ground squirrels alerting everyone and drawing attention to themselves. It turns out that when you actually watch what predators do, they don't go for the one that saw them and is making the call. They're going for the one that's running for its burrow because it doesn't know where the predator is. So now we think that that's actually kind of a selfish activity mm-hmm. you call hey watch all these other animals scurry around and you know the hawk's going to get one of them and they're not going to get you because you know you've already identified that that you you see them plus those high pitch calls are really hard hard to locate sometimes and that that's the thing the chucks that you'll hear those individual notes the barks a lot of a lot of times you'll read about squirrels barking yeah those are a little easier to locate when they go into that high pitched mode you know, it's those high pitched calls are really hard. They're harder to locate. So uh, once they get to that level of agitation, uh, you know, they it's thought that if they're that level of agitation, the predator's really close, then it's a little bit harder to actually locate. I know they're in this tree somewhere, but the squirrel's going to see them before, you know, the predator sees the squirrel. I've seen them uh, when they're like chased each other, like rutting around. I've seen them do some amount of agitated chirping at each other but one like when you're squirrel calling like my my understanding of this was always that you're making the alarm call when you do that noise thinking that other squirrels are going to wonder what the story is and come out to try to figure out what the problem is 
It's not very effective. It's very, like yeah. at a certain time of year, making the distress noise seems to get yep. females out. But I don't. It's squirrel calling is not like a great thing. I don't think. Yeah, the squirrel calls, depending which ones you have, you know, the, the ones that I've used to when we're trying to locate them. You know, you're, you're it's it's a percussion kind of instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, you're pounding. It's the chucks. You're yeah. you're getting yeah, those chucks. It's like a little plunger. Yep, and and that makes sense because that's one. They're easier to locate. So and usually use them when the squirrels in the back side of the tree or a big branch, and they kind of look around. You know, that's that's where they're effective is actually getting their you know getting their attention. Rarely do do they do, can you draw them out of a nest. Uh, and so, so you use those for research purposes. Yeah, we use them for research. If we know, if we're trying to check on is this individual alive, and we don't have radio collars on all our animals, you can go in and and use that chucking call, or use my really lame um, chucks. That's enough for a squirrel typically to to peek around a you know tree and. Oh no, and, kidding. And, okay. and So you'll hear them. Yeah. You'll hear them scurrying around the tree a little bit. That you know running against the bark, um, and that's it's a great way to locate individuals. And oh yeah, it's red ear, red right ear, green left ear kind of thing. The other call that you'll hear during those mating chases is that it's kind of a snorting of males. And as they run along, it's a great way to locate. I mean, that's how we locate mating chases in kind of natural forest. That's not a parkland like I was describing before. So we work on endangered mount ground red squirrels in Arizona and really dense forests. But during the breeding season, you can hear this kind of sneezing or snorting um, as all these males are chasing the female. And it's thought that one, they're just, they're trying to clear their, uh, their, their nasal passages so they can pick up scent and figure out where the female is as quickly as possible. Um, so it's thought that it's related to that. The only other call, well, there are a couple other really rare calls, but um, the probably the the other one that's similar to some of these, that high-pitched whine that we talked about, females, if, so during these mating chases, the females will avoid males um, and kind of incite this chase so that the, it's thought, so the most, you know, the animal that's in the best shape, has the best ability to locate a limited resource, can find her. And so she'll run through um, shrubbery and things like that. And then she'll just sit at the base of a tree and, and it's usually the first male that finds her that'll get to mate with her. So the success is a little bit on dominance, but it's on your skill in locating the female. If they don't find her, she's now, you know, she has to mate. She's only in heat for six hours. If she doesn't, you know, then she's not going to reproduce. So she'll actually issue that alarm call, that really high-pitched call, and it'll attract all those males again to the site. And then she'll mate with the first one if they find her before the other males do. So the same call is used in a slightly different context. Are you familiar with, uh, I'm sure you are, when when they're sitting there doing that pissed off mm-hmm. call that their tail's moving yep. and that's what gives them away. I heard someone suggest that they're using that tail to 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 trick predators because when the hawks come to slap them they hit that tail because they see the tail moving and then the squirrel skinnies out because they got him by the tail. So a couple of things. One, that flicking the tail also kind of is correlated with how pissed off they are. So the more worked up they're about something, you'll see them flicking that tail more. People have tried to see how much information is really conveyed in that. You know, is there a, a hidden squirrel language? And, uh, 
you know, there's not at that level where it's like, oh, here's a, you know, a meaning of that flicking the tail, but it does uh, seem to be correlated with how risky the situation is so that perhaps the predator sees that, uh, but other individuals may see that as well and recognize, okay, you know, there's something really close here that's, you know, that's bothersome. But that tail itself has a couple of different functions. One is that it is used for dissipating heat. So if you if you watch a squirrel during the heat of the summer and clay, you know, in, in Arkansas, you probably see this sometimes, but you'll see them splayed out sometimes on the ground in some moist soil. They'll flick their tail up. And if you look at the base of the if you look at the base of the tail, they actually spread the hairs and you'll see blood pulsing through there. So it's hmm. a way that they dissipate heat. Yep. And you can, in in Arizona, some of the, the squirrel species that we have down there, like the Mexican fox squirrel, you know, they're, they're in 110 degree temperatures. And, you know, if you're out running around, you got to get rid of that heat fast and you, you're wearing this, you know, this fur coat. So they literally sit there and use that tail. So they'll flip it up over themselves. And send blood through it. And send blood through it. It's just a surface to get rid of heat. It also, uh, we know that they'll use them during the winter. It's a, like kind of an added la layer of insulation. Uh, that the, So you'll see it laying over their back. Uh, some of the kind of classic squirrel pictures in, in the winter are usually just, here's another, you know, another blanket you're throwing on. Mm -hmm. Or they use them like an umbrella. You know, they're... Yeah, oh, I've, yeah? You know, yeah? I've seen them with, you know, a half inch of snow on the on the top of the tail and they're just, you know, kind of huddled down. Uh, so there's that advantage as well. But if you're going to have, uh, if you're going to be attacked by a predator, you know, talons in, talons in the, uh, you know, in the tail are much better than talons in the rib cage. So they do, uh, you do occasionally find tailless animals. Uh, some of that may be due to predators, but Really, if a predator gets you, you know, and you're that close, predators are really good at making sure they, you know, seal the deal. Uh, more often, we see these broken tails and clip tails are actually the result of battle between animals. So they don't they don't clip each other. He's going for the nuts and gets the tail. <laughs> no, I was going to say, oh. they're not going. I don't want to go back there, Steve. I thought we were past this, but, uh, you know, we can revisit if necessary. Uh, so they, they don't go for the, for those, but the, uh, the testicles, but they will go for tails. And so. Every time I see a squirrel with a broken tail, I make up a, a mind movie where the fox gets it by the sure. tail. And he busts off. And I'm like certain that that's what's happened. Yeah. I never thought it was like squirrel on squirrel yeah, it's, violence. It's, it's usually squirrel on squirrel violence. Huh. Very rarely. I, I, I've seen probably 30 or 40 predation events by, by mammal predators and never once had, they've grabbed them by the tail, but never once have, has that tail broken off before they've, you know, got the kill shot in there already. Oh, okay. Um, but when squirrels, especially during these mating chases, when two males are fighting, they'll often grab the other one by the tail and literally kind of fling them around and throw them out of the tree. So uh, they, that's where we think most of the broken tails come from. And you see them more commonly in males than females because exactly that kind of biology. Got any more calling questions, Johnny? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess if you think there's something interesting there with the 
with the red pine squirrel chatter that I like I used to always walk this uh the irrigation ditch, you know, is a great way to sneak through the woods and it kind of cut through a piece of woods that separated some ag fields these elk fed and and up above yeah. it was where they where they bedded. And I used to just hate it when up ahead of me or near me, boy, you'd get one barking at you. And I just felt like, man, every elk within, you know, 150 yards is like, ah, I know Yanni's coming down the ditch. <laughs> yeah, but I, what, what I like is when you um, are, aren't doing anything and you're being real quiet or whatever, and you hear one light up, you yeah. hear a pissed off pine squirrel. And then you're like, there's no way he's mad at me. Like, there's no way he knows about me. Then I get real curious over in that direction. Like, what is he mad about? Because I think they'll bark at, I think they'll bark at anything yep. coming through the woods, you know? Yeah. So is that true? They will bark at anything? Like yep. an elk walking through the woods, they'll bark at it because they're annoyed by it. I, I have seen him uh, bark at elk and deer before. They tend, they, they use it for, uh, more often they'll use it for other animals, uh, other squirrels, same species. Oh, they do? It's, yep. It's, so it's it's a territorial. Oh, that's why I should have pointed out yeah. that I have never yeah. heard one light up. And then lo and behold, here comes like, a bear. you know, here comes an elk. Right. It's yeah. always like, eh, I never could find out yeah. what he's mad about. <laughs> so they, they'll use it. They use the same kinds of calls that we were just, we were talking about for fox squirrels and gray squirrels typically for like a predator that's, that's come through. But they use that territorial rattle call. It's <laughs> that, that kind of call. Is that, is that, that any better? Good. That was good. Is that okay? Well, that okay. Wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> okay, not bad. Five, no, that's five six. No, okay, that's that's cool. I'll take that. Take whatever I can get. You know, I but, think I think but, having that call when you're when you're hunting some other animal other than a squirrel, I mean, you've got to be paying attention to a barking squirrel. Like what I've seen is there's some percentage of times that a squirrel's going to bark at a deer, and they love barking at bears. If you're hunting yeah. bears over bait, be listening for squirrels. They'll yep. bark at a bear for sure. But but then, you know, some percentage of the time they're going to be barking at another squirrel, so it's, you know, not relevant information. But, I mean, lots of good woodsmen are listening for squirrels barking. And some percentage of the time, maybe 20% of the time, they're barking at, you know, a target animal that you're after. Yeah, I, I would agree, Clay, especially those eastern grays and fox squirrels. Yeah. They very often do that. The rattle calls that we're, we're talking about with the red squirrels are uh, – those are a territorial call that tends to be focused on members of their own species, although they I had no idea, man. That explains so much. Yeah. So, so you can blame your lack of success on – Well, no. Just I mean I'm like, I'm like I hear one yeah. and I'm always dissatisfied of like that I could never find out like what it was he was mad about. But I didn't know he's just mad at some other squirrel because if I saw two squirrels sitting there, I wouldn't be like, oh, he's mad at his buddy. So – it, it really is an indicator that the space is occupied. So during, uh, and especially when, when you'll see it most often is the fall when they've, when they've built these new piles of cones and it is letting their neighbors know that there's somebody there, that's their, that's their pile of cones. Where you do see it used is you mentioned earlier, you know, that bears will go in, you know, uh, grizzlies like to go in and rip open these and uh, these middens and, Sometimes eat the little bit of meat or mushrooms, but they're mostly going for like, you know, some of the larger 
pine seeds that, mm-hmm. that'll be stored in there. And that's where you will hear those rattle calls, uh, that territorial call of, of red squirrels, that, because now you've got another competitor for seeds. So we tend to see that call used against competitors, yep. mostly other members of your own species, but, you know, grizzlies like to go in and, and rip those open uh, for, for food. This is, I didn't write this down in our little list, but I'm going to hit someone else's question here. Whose question is it about how to get them out of a dray? <laughs> I put that in there. Okay, check this out. Let's say you're a squirrel biologist and you're trying to observe a squirrel. And you see him running across the forest floor and you're like, ah, he's spooked. And then he runs up and goes into a dray or goes into a hole. And you're a, just a biologist trying to do a friendly squirrel study. Short of like smoke bombs and whatnot, like well, how would you be like, I'll show you how I'll get him to come out? Tricks of the trade. You're asking me for tricks of the trade yeah. here. <laughs> but okay. Let's say a friendly squirrel biologist was <laughs> in that situation. So it, in those leaf nests, those drays that, you know, the basketball sized ball of leaves, really hard to get them out of those. They typically are going in. When they have young, they're almost always in cavities. They, uh, the the whole, you know, the tree cavities, the the old rotten hole. Um, that, so once they're up in those balls of leaves, it's really difficult to get them out. That's what I found to be true. <laughs> but in the in cavities, uh, you know, you you mentioned this with the with the mink that the animal seemed to know that that animal is, you know, there's an animal outside. And just like you, you, we've all heard a squirrel walking up bark and kind of how noisy that is. The animal in the den cavity knows that you've got some, an individual coming up. So the way we, we, if we were doing a survey as friendly squirrel biologists, (laughs) we would, you just take a, a stick and you work it up the side of the tree like an animal that's a potential predator or an animal that's coming up. And if there's a if there's a, a group yeah. of squirrels in particular, they'll yeah. come out right away to kind of defend the turf. So, oh. yeah, yeah. so Dude, it's, don't be now telling anybody that, man. Let's talk more but, about well, they're I'm cutting that part out. There's there's so many <laughs> there's so many cavities that don't have squirrels in. If you that was going to be your sole strategy. Oh no, but a lot of times you see them go in there. Yep, yep, and oh you get a bad awesome. feeling. Yeah. And then I always think this, and maybe you can answer this. Uh, I always think, I'm going to sit here until that some bitch comes back out. But man, that could wear a fella out. Oh, well, one out of 10 <laughs> times, yeah, he comes out in less than 10 minutes. It seems like the other nine times you sit there for 30 and he hasn't showed up. You're like, all right, it's more efficient yeah. to keep walking. So those those cavities are a limiting resource for, for squirrels. And, and so they'll go in and just explore to kind of, you know, likely see what their options are. You know, are they going to upgrade and move into this, you know, yeah. this cavity? Uh, and and then females, when they're uh, pregnant, will often go around and start exploring these more protected cavities uh, where they're going to, where they're going to raise their young. And so you either get the, this is, you know, a, a quick visit and, you know, we've all gone looking for a house or an apartment. You walk in like, nope, not for me. And then you turn around and come back out. So sometimes you'll get those kinds of experiences. But when you spook him in and he runs and you're like, it's obvious yep. he knew where that hole was. Yep. He ran to it to get away. How long do you think on average it would be till he's going to naturally come back out again? It will often be hours, yeah, so it's it's typically that's it's what not I found worth it. To be so, true, man. yeah, well, it, you know, when we're doing our research and you're following animals and you're like, okay, what, you know, I'm trying to find this animal's 
nest for the night or you, you, you know they're kind of in this area, you want to, you know, see if they're still alive uh, and then you spook them by accident, it, it often is ours. And hmm. during the heat of the summer, you know, they'll, they'll go in and they'll spend sometimes three or four hours in the middle of the day. Keep cool. Uh, yep. To cool off. And then females with young go back and usually nurse for a couple of hours. So if you just happen to, you know, catch them on the way back to the nest or, uh, you know, you spooked them in and they're close enough to the nest that they ran in, they're not going to come out for, for several hours. So yeah, gotcha. the, the stick trick though, like diameter of the stick. And then is it like a tapping or are you more of just like, like making some friction by rubbing? Do you have to get a 10 foot long stick so that you can actually make it work all the way up towards the, the hole itself? It, it really just depends on how far up the hole is. And it doesn't always work, but you'll have pretty good success rates with it if if there is an animal in there. How is that not so. broken into the squirrel hunting world? <laughs> I almost think it doesn't work. So, well, oh, so now you're calling me a liar. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> oh, I'm going to try I, it, man. I spend a couple hours of my day with you, and then right at the end, the truth comes out, bam, still feeling a little salty about the squirrel testicle questions and uh, I, we will report back <laughs> but yes, I, but I can no, guarantee you I'll be messing but, with this oh yeah so, but I want to so, know is it more of like a tapping or just like are you just like like a rubbing sound it's, it's a rubbing you're trying to imitate an animal coming up if you watch so I, I would encourage you to go out sometime in the evening and follow animals back to the nest especially during the colder seasons. This is with fox and grays. What red squirrels are pretty solitary, although in winter sometimes they'll nest together. The uh, but fo- and you'll watch the animal. It'll it, it'll typically come in from the side. It won't typically come straight up the nest, but it'll it'll come in through the canopy, jump on the main stalk, and then go up to the cavity. You'll see animals inside just kind of peek their head out just a little bit, and we know that they have ultrasonic calls too, um, and they haven't been very well studied, so we're talking about vocalizations. We can't hear the ultrasound, but we know that they they can hear in that range, and so they're probably and those ultrasonic calls don't travel very far, so they're good for that really close use, you know, really close distance. So we think that they're actually communicating, you know, friend or foe. You know something there. Sometimes you'll see that they'll 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 get chased out. They'll run down, pick up some leaves, like some warm bedding, and try to use that almost as a gift to get in. Sometimes it works. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, uh, but the uh, so you're really trying to imitate something moving up. You know, maybe a predator that they all need. Oh. If it's if it's a you know, if it's an animal that could, uh, a member should be part of the group, those ultrasonic calls are probably going to work. So you really want to imitate, you know, you're a, it's a raccoon coming up where they're all going to jump out of the nest and, and um, you know, you'll be able to see if that's, you know, if, if it's occupied or not. But it's more just a, a scratching, a light scratching. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, I think that's something most people won't be familiar with. But if you watch animals in the evening, you'll, you'll, you'll see that. And then the other thing is the scent marks that we talked about that can tell you if, a, if, if the area is occupied. Can actually, if you smell enough of them, you can tell here's one that's really active and uh, that there are probably a higher density of, of animals that, that are in that site. So those are, those are a couple tricks of the trade. Right, this, is my, this is my last question. Then these guys can ask their last questions too. My last question is in your in your field as an academic. Let's say you got curious about 
squirrels falling. Okay. When you consider the limits of animal ethics, could you ever, like, would you be allowed to propose and execute a study in which you took squirrels and dropped them from various heights to see what happens to them? Or would that just get shut down as being like, just sort of like the, the, the reward wasn't, there wasn't enough to like justify it. Right. And I think that's it. It's, it's the kind of weighing the, the benefits and the, and the costs, you know, the ethical costs of, of doing that. So, you know, they're in that case, you'd want to know, you know, I do the study of looking at museum bones and see, you know, how many are broken is, you know, does that seem to be an issue? There may be other ways that you get there. And, you know, while that's, while it's interesting, you know, learning about their mortality, uh, that may not be, you know, in my mind, that wouldn't be enough to sway it to let's drop squirrels from, you know, a bunch, a bunch of different heights um, to, to learn the little bit that we might yeah, add to that. Just like the, the pain and suffering yeah, yeah. doesn't warrant yeah. the... But for instance, we, we've worked on some squirrel removal projects where you've got an invasive, a non-native species, and that's in a place on Mount Graham. We have enda- uh, federally endangered species of red, uh, subspecies of red squirrel there, and there's introduced abert squirrels. And so we've done some removal studies beca- uh, because the real conservation goal was let's make sure we still have the native species here. And in that case, you know, we viewed it and so did our institutional review board um, and the state with their permits viewed it as a reasonable trade-off, this species that wasn't supposed to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we've actually done is the, the state of Arizona increased the the length of the season, bag limits, all those things as a way to kind of control that non-native species. So I think that, you know, in that case, you say, okay, you know, it's a lethal method. We're removing these individuals uh, and they're, you know, they're being, hunters are taking them and helping with converse, conservation. Um, in that case, you know, we, we, we thought that that, the balance, uh, you know, there, the costs versus benefits warranted, you know, the, the, doing that kind of lethal removal uh, to try to have an impact on a species that, you know, might otherwise uh, go extinct. Got it. You've written multiple books and like dozens of of papers on squirrels, right? I I have that right? Hundreds of papers. Hundreds of papers. That's okay. Okay. So like- (laughs) And I know it's not a Sigurd Olsen award (laughs) winning uh, kind of of performance. I've done my homework here, pal. (laughs) Do Do you prioritize- like studying squirrels in wild areas, or would you do a study in Central Park and be satisfied with the observations? It really depends on what your question is, you know, if you're what you're trying to accomplish. And so, you know, if you wanted to know uh, something like social behaviors and some of the things that we've talked about, being able to observe animals is really critical. And although some of their social structure might change, some of the basics, you know, are they willing to nest with other individuals, set marking, those things are thing that w- things that would be almost impossible to study with radio telemetry or, you know, with, with observations in a real natural woodland with, you know, lots of different layers to the, the canopy and, uh, you know, it just would be very difficult to see. Uh, you, but... But we can learn a great deal in those kind of open areas. And we can also, by comparing the, you know, an urban area and urban parkland and 
a, a more wild natural situation. We can also learn something what might change and how you know habitat might be influential, how human impacts you know m might work. Squirrels are just a to me they're a great indicator of change. Uh, you know things that we might not even yet see. Squirrels are able to pick up on those things, and and uh, because they're common enough, we can see changes in density. We can see changes in behavior. Uh, I've, I've mentioned a couple of times things like the size of the home range changes based on the quality of the forest. We go in and we look at a forest and say, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe not enough mature seed producing trees here, but it looks pretty similar structurally to other places. But squirrels, you know, that require uh, enough uh, food energy, enough of those uh, seed producing trees will let us know that there's a problem. You know, beetle kill, huge problem in many of the forests here in the West. By the time we often even notice beetle kill, we've seen uh, squirrel decreases in squirrel numbers in those areas that they're already responding to those changes. So in some ways, you know, a lot like the canary in a coal mine that, you know, coal miners would take in, uh, they're kind of an early warning system uh, and they're common enough that they can that we can learn relatively quickly, and because they don't live that long, they respond pretty quickly. Their numbers respond quickly. You had it in your notes that uh, noise can impact them. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we've all been down, you know, dirt roads with lots of red squirrels on, you know, each side of the road, and thought, ah, oh, you know, not many people go down this this road probably very little impact. We've actually done some studies where we've mapped the noise in. So we, we've we gone out in the forest with a bunch of noise detectors and mapped, you know, had a map of the amount of noise. And then we've just driven a single truck uh, through there and looked at how that noise level changes. And, and uh, there, there's enough of a change that, uh, that squirrels can avoid those roads a little bit. And, uh, and, and red squirrels in particular, they won't build middens near the near roads. And it's not the structure of the forest. It's actually the, the noise that's there. So they, they are really sensitive. And I guess, you know, that makes sense. We're talking about all these vocalizations. And if you're trying to listen for predators all the time, you know, you're the kind of a bite-sized morsel for lots of things. Then, you know, your ability to... Uh, to detect predators has probably decreased a little bit. So they're, they're kind of a good, they're a good indicator. You know, if you have the occasional vehicle moving down the road, that's not problematic, you know, but if you've got, if you're hitting a point where there's so much traffic now that's going down, down these areas, squirrels are kind of an early warning system that, okay, something's changed. Traffic levels are getting a little bit too much here. So, you know, maybe we need to, to look at how we're using the forest, how we're using those roads. If, if you Google squirrel expert, your name comes up, right? Like that's, that's how we, <laughs> and, and, we came and only in. one name. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's what I'm going to get at here. That's okay. like, uh, how we tracked you down, right? Like you are North America. I'm regretting that right now. Authority on squirrels. Okay. <laughs> this this is going to be an ignorant question, but like how how does someone like yourself, the squirrel expert, end up at Arizona and Wyoming? That that seems to me like the nation's elk expert being in Nebraska or like the the whitetail expert being in Washington state. It just doesn't really fit in my mind. Well, and I think many people would say that initially. Uh, but for instance, the the greatest diversity of squirrels 
in the U.S. is in Arizona. So, you know, we, we've talked about uh, when you think of that kind of basin and range landscape where you've got, you know, mountaintops that are forested where you're going to find squirrels. And then you've got ground squirrels, first of all, in the, you know, open grasslands, uh, the kind of seas in between the these mountains. Uh, in many places in the West, you may have different species. And this is the case in Arizona. When you just move move 50 miles between two different mountains, you've got a couple of different species. You know, they've been, most of those mountains in Arizona been isolated since the ice age. And, uh, you know, from a squirrel's perspective. So it's just, it's really fascinating for diversity. Wyoming, uh, you know, just the, the wonderful, wide open, kind of wild and working lands that so many of us value about the West, same here in Montana. Uh, you know, the ability to, to have species like this that are great indicators of change, the ability to go in and, you know, uh, really help manage these, these natural areas really is, really is critical when you have, you know, species like this that can be wonderful indicators, be an early warning system. You know, the opportunity to make a difference here, you know, is, is really wonderful. So I've, I've enjoyed living in the West and, and having moved to the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources, you know, just in the last few months for exactly that same opportunity to have an impact. And that's why you guys are as, as much fun as we have in these kinds of shows. You know, you, you want to make sure that we have these opportunities in the future and, and, that's that's the same for me. So that's that's what's brought me here. Can't speak for the elk biologist in Nebraska, though. Clay, what do you got? You got any final uh, final questions, final thoughts, man? You know, my only question was uh, about squirrel meat. Just real quick, I'm trying to fuel this narrative that we all have that squirrel meat is like rocket fuel and like this great meat. Um, <laughs> do you have any info on protein and nutrient content of squirrel meat as compared to other meats? No, I don't, Clay. Um, you know, it, it is very tasty, and yeah. uh, you know, I, I I've enjoyed squirrel, but I don't I don't have a comparison. Um, sorry, yeah, can't help there. You know, most people, a lot of people have the have kind of a stigma with squirrel meat. You know, I was just thinking, you know, their diet is just yeah. so much plants, fruits, and nuts. I yep. mean, they're it's a really clean animal. Yep. I mean, when you skin them and eat them, it's 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 really a lot of just mental stigma. But, uh, well, since you don't have that data, I'm going to go ahead and just keep telling my story that it's like the most healthy meat in the world. That's all, Steve. Well, I, Clay, I will say that, you know, I, I, think, I think you're right that, that squirrels get a bad rap. It's probably back to the tree rat kinds of things where we started today. Uh, you know, there's a bit of a stigma, but they are. They're, they're omnivorous. They're eating a variety of different foods. Uh, and so in that sense... You know, they, they are a good meat. The other thing that I think, you know, from a hunting perspective, it's a great way to get kids involved, um, you know, early. It's one of those species they see enough of. Uh, and, you know, you may not, you may not have, a, have great luck in the day, but you're out, you know, moving through the woods, appreciating the forest, lots of sign to teach kids you know, kids about, you can see those, you know, the hulled nuts, you can see some of the diggings, uh, you can see these scent marks. It's just a great way to, to teach, you know, teach folks how to, how to really enjoy those natural areas. Okay. What do you got, Yanni? We'll wrap it up. I don't have anything else. I was just going to throw it to John and see if there's anything that we, uh, that you wanted to add that you feel like we 
missed in this well, big squirrel conversation. Uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed you know, this time and, and, and hope, hopefully uh, everyone's learned a little bit about things. Uh, we're, we're filming this on the 20 or we're uh, taping this on the 22nd of January, the day after Squirrel Appreciation Day. So I know it's probably hard for many of you to pull yourself out of bed and Yeah, what and is Squirrel Appreciation Day? That's my, my brother's birthday. So, yeah. So it is the, every year, January 21st, it's, it was just designated as Squirrel Appreciation Day. So we're kind of in the high holy days of squirrel biology. February yeah. 2nd. Yeah. Yep. Groundhog Day coming up. So this is, you know, you're lucky that, that I was willing to drive here on Squirrel Appreciation well, Day. Well, no, I would this think that you season. drove here because <laughs> of Squirrel Appreciation Day. <laughs> no, we're no, here to appreciate yeah, squirrels, man. That's right. No. And, and, and so really have appreciated the, the discussion. But, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just uh, I really feel that, uh, that squirrels, we've talked about them, you know, as a, as a resource for us to enjoy, uh, you know, as hunters. You've got folks in urban environments like me growing up, really the only mammal that I could, you know, could see and enjoy. You know, their teachers use them for, you know, for projects and, and biology early on. And then they're, they're indicator species of, you know, of forest change. So to me, I, I really appreciate you know, anyone can appreciate the beauty of an elk moving across, you know, a, a meadow. But uh, to to have the finer level of it takes appreciation. takes someone special yeah, that's to right. appreciate takes, a squirrel. Yeah, it, yeah, it takes that special level of appreciation. How does someone find your books on squirrels? Uh, they're, they're all on Amazon. Uh, uh, you've got Squirrels of the World uh, is the is the one that we uh, that we're most proud of, and we're working on a new new edition of that. North American tree squirrels. Uh, there's a a book on ecology of endangerment and mount crown red squirrels, and and most recently the book I shared with you is um, international wildlife management that uh, looks at things broadly. But there are a few squirrel mentions in there. I wouldn't I wouldn't mind getting me a signed copy of North American tree squirrels. We can make that happen, dude. I would love. It. I, I just I haven't I, read that book, but I need to read that one. You think so, hunters can learn something from your squirrel books? I, most definitely. I think Squirrels of the World is kind of a compendium that shows everything from chipmunks. So when we talk, we've talked mostly about tree squirrels, but you've got flying squirrels, which are mostly nocturnal. You've got prairie dogs, you know, groundhogs, marmots, chipmunks. All of those things are, are squirrels as well. That covers all of them. North American tree squirrels, a lot of these uh Topics we've talked about. One of the great things about writing a book like that is those few those observations where you only have a couple of you know cases of them. You can weave them into a book more than you, you know, get a scientific publication out of it. So North American tree squirrels uh, has has a bunch of these kinds of things. Talks a lot about the the scent marking sites and, hmm. and nesting behavior, social behavior. So it it would be a good one to to learn a learn a fair amount from. All right, John. Once again, John Ladd, you do the last name. Kaprowski. That's not that hard. That's, yeah, John Ladd Kaprowski, yeah. Dean and Wyoming Excellence Chair at the Hob School of Environment and Natural Resources and a squirrel man. I'm proud of all of those things. Dr. Squirrel. Thank Even you very much. Even Dr. Squirrel. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, yeah. This is great. You answered a million questions for us. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks. You know, hardly anyone wants to talk about squirrels. So when you have the chance, you guys are lucky. I'm not staying an extra day. Oh, I, <laughs> I, I, uh, 
it's great. It answered a lot of lifelong questions. I'll look at them um, differently now, and I can tell you that um, I am going to start trying to find some of those uh, those buck rubs, those squirrel rubs, which is fascinating. I can't believe I didn't know about it. So if you find some, send me some pictures, everyone out there, of your buck rubs, squirrel rubs. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks, John. Thank you. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacova's store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit Tacova's.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.